Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. This continuing education activity is provided by CME Outfitters, LLC. CME Outfitters, LLC gratefully acknowledges an independent educational grant from Cephalon Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled, The Complexities of Managing Patients with Sleep-Wake Disorders, The Need to Treat the Whole Patient. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Thomas Ross, Dr. Larry Culpepper, and Dr. Phyllis Z. Dr. Ross, our moderator for today's activity, is the director of the Sleep Disorders and Research Center at Henry Ford Hospital and clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan. Dr. Ross has disclosed that he is on the speakers' bureaus for Cephalon Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventus, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. Dr. Ross has also received grant support and serves as a consultant for various companies which are disclosed in the course materials and online at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 384. Dr. Culpepper is professor and chairman of the Department of Family Medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and chief of family medicine at Boston Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Culpepper has disclosed that he serves as a consultant to AstraZeneca Pharmaceutical LP, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Pfizer Incorporated, Samaxon Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He is on the Speakers Bureau for Forest Laboratories Incorporated and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Z is Professor of Neurology, Director of the Sleep Disorder Center, and Associate Director of the Center for Sleep and Circadian Biology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Z has disclosed that she receives grant support from Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. She serves as a consultant to Cephalon Incorporated, Philips, Santa Fe Aventus, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. She is a stock shareholder of Teva Pharmaceuticals USA. Over the next hour, Dr. Roth, Dr. Culpepper, and Dr. Z will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 384 or call 877-CME-PROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you may complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test, or you can complete the credit request form and evaluation form, which are included in the course materials. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. Tom Roth. I'm a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan School of Medicine, and I am the director of the Sleep Disorders and Research Center at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Neuroscience CME TV, the continuing education series devoted to the needs of professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience CME is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's broadcast of Neuroscience CME TV is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. I encourage you to visit the site for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your practice. I would also remind you to stick around for our Neuroscience CME TV after the show segment, 
where you are invited to call us, email us with your most challenging questions and cases. Our goal is to further translate evidence presented today into practical tools you can use to improve the lives of your patients. We continue to receive a lot of positive feedback regarding this segment and encourage you to keep sending your cases and comments to us. And with that, welcome to our show today. Today's program is entitled, The Complexities of Managing Patients with Sleep-Wake Disorders, The Need to Treat the Whole Patient. I'm truly excited about today's program and I hope we can share some of the best practices and examples of measurement-based cases that you can use in your practice. Let me now quickly review our learning objectives for today. Our first learning objective is to increase screening and evaluation of patients with sleep-wake disorders. Our second learning objective is to utilize diagnostic tools and instruments to improve the accuracy in the differential diagnosis of disorders of excessive sleepiness, including obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and circadian rhythm disorders such as shift work sleep disorder and narcolepsy. And finally, to develop treatment plan to interface both primary care providers and sleep specialists to improve the continuum of care of patients with sleep-ache disorders. I would now like to introduce our faculty joining me today. Dr. Phyllis C. is a professor of neurology and director of the Sleep Disorder Center and associate director of the Center of Sleep and Circadian Biology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Phyllis, welcome to the show. Tom, thank you. Also joining us today is Dr. Larry Culpepper. Larry is the chairman and professor of, of the Department of Internal Medicine of Boston University School of Medicine and chief of family medicine at Boston Medical Center. Larry, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Tom. Larry and Phyllis, we have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Our learning objectives in this segment is to focus on patients using validated scales. Phyllis, let's start with you and let's talk briefly about what causes excessive sleepiness? Well, Tom, in our 24-7 society, one of the most common causes of excessive sleepiness is, of course, sleep deprivation. But from a clinical standpoint, it's really important to remember that many sleep disorders, like obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, uh, and, and, and sleep-wake cycle disorders can also cause excessive sleepiness. And then in addition to that, medical and psychiatric conditions and the medications that we use oftentimes that are sedating to treat these conditions can also are common causes of excessive sleepiness. Now, what determines how, how impaired you are? Well, you know, impairment uh, due to sleepiness or sleep loss can, you know, it may be due to the, the how long you've been awake. The longer you're awake, the sleepier one gets. But also the type of task, whether it's boring or not, the type of task. And I also think it's important to, to remember that there are individual differences okay. in the ability to adapt to sleep loss. I think this individual difference is an important comment, and I think we'll return to that as we talk to some of these. Larry. Are there any real consequences? So, so, you know, Dr. Z talked about, Phyllis talked about these various tasks. But what are the real consequences associated with sleepiness in patients? Well, the consequences are, are myriad. And we find behavioral consequences, mental health consequences, medical consequences. Now, a lot of these are acute and dramatic. You know, the accidents that we see related to uh, uh, you know, to uh, sleep loss or, or excessive sleepiness, the, uh, you know, the poor judgment. Uh, uh, but we also find uh, no less uh, severe uh, impact of the more chronic subtle uh, effects of, uh, of uh, uh, excessive sleepiness over time. Yeah, and those uh, include uh, profound effects in the workplace, uh, not only in terms of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, workplace problems, but, you know, the employee that just doesn't advance in, in their career because of it. Uh, we see mood effects, uh, uh, both the uh, increased risk of, uh, of psychiatric disorders and the recurrence of psychiatric disorders. And then finally, uh, risk-taking behaviors, uh, cognitive deficits, uh, and just pervasive reduction in quality of life. These are a series of, of profound impairments. Can you calibrate this sure. to, our, to our audience? You know, what else in, in their clinical practice relates to these kinds of effects? Uh, probably, a, you, know, a, you know, a very crisp uh, uh, delineation is the relationship between the functional impairment and the cognitive impairment, uh, the performance impairment, due to excessive sleepiness, 
and due to, uh, to alcohol. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that people uh, with advanced excessive sleepiness you know, are, in essence, uh, functioning as if they were drunk. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So driving you know, with excessive sleepiness is pretty much the equivalent of driving drunk. Now, Phyllis, we've heard a lot about the behavioral mood, psychiatric consequences of excessive sleepiness. How about physiological and medical consequences of excessive sleepiness or sleep deprivation? Well, Tom, there, there, there are really growing number of studies now to show that there is indeed a very strong relationship between sleep loss and cardiovascular disorders or cardiovascular risk as well as metabolic. So I think some of the uh, best data come from the, from the metabolic data where, you know, you can take normal, healthy young people and just sleep deprive them for a short period of time for about four or five hours a day. And now they, you know, they, they exhibit impairment in glucose metabolism uh, to a condition that pretty much resembles a pre-diabetic state like insulin resistance. Okay, so, so we have a sense that this is important. Now, you know, Larry, you, you, you're in primary care medicine, so, so very clearly these patients are going to come to you first. You know, how, you know what are they coming presenting with? What, what, what do they say? Well, and, and these patients, you know, some of them do come in saying, you know, I'm really having trouble, uh, uh, you know, because I just can't stay awake. But that's unusual. Right. You know, the usual presentation uh, you know, is sort of the, oh, by the way, or could you help me with this, kind of added on to the other reasons the patient may be in the office. And very often the language is not one of sleep. It's, you know, I'm having, uh, you know, a lot of trouble with fatigue or I feel depressed or, uh, yeah, I, I just have no energy. Yeah, and so we really have to be uh, alert uh, for the underlying, uh, you know, condition. And what we find is that, in fact, uh, the triad of excessive sleepiness, fatigue, and depression uh, often uh, run together, and that that uh, overlap is one that uh, is very common in, uh, in the office setting in terms of the way patients present to us. Now, if you suspect excessive sleepiness, are there one or two questions you, you sort of ask them? Yeah, uh, you know, at, at that point, uh, we really want to recognize, is this uh, an issue in the sleep domain? And just two or three questions are, is all it takes. You know, I typically ask, you know, do you have any trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep? Uh, do you wake rested? Do you have any problems mm -hmm. in terms of wake rest? And then particularly, uh, do you have problems with excessive sleepiness during the day? You know, because it's that daytime right. of impact, you know, that is what really is affecting our patients. So, Phyllis, if, if, if these two or three questions guide me in a path of, of uh, a sleep disorder or excessive sleepiness, you know, what, what are some of the, you know, tools that a clinician can use to sort of validate these, to improve, you know, to sort of define or, or validate the presence of these conditions? Well, luckily, there are some uh, very simple and well-validated kind of questionnaire-based tools that I think is very practical in clinical practice. Uh, one of these uh, is the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which is really a, a scale that evaluates the level of excessive daytime sleepiness, and it basically measures uh, how likely one is to fall asleep under various functional conditions. Another one is the Fatigue uh, Severity Scale which, uh, you know, helps to distinguish the patient who's excessively sleepy from someone who actually is fatigued. And, of course, they're often comorbid with each other, these conditions. The, the other is the insomnia severity index. Oftentimes, patients with insomnia who are not sleeping well may also present with either fatigue symptoms and or excessive sleepiness. And that gives you a level of whether insomnia, how much insomnia actually plays a role in the, uh, in, in the cause of the excessive sleepiness. You know, Phyllis, a lot of times in practice, I, I find that I ask a patient to keep a diary. And a sleep mm -hmm. diary uh, you know, is, uh, yeah. is one that I find useful. Are, are they really valid? And, you know, what, what am I looking for when I look at a sleep diary result? Well, Larry, I use sleep diaries or sleep logs uh, often. And okay. actually with all my patients, either with, with most of the sleep disorders, especially excessive sleepiness, because it, it not only helps you assess some of the behaviors that, that mm -hmm. you could fix uh, that, that's maybe contributing to their uh, poor sleep habits, but also gives you a very good visual way of looking and tracking when they're going to bed, when they're waking up, how much sleep they're, they're actually getting. In addition to that, it's also a good way to kind of monitor the progress to your treatments. Oh, okay. Now, now so, we, you know, so our clinicians have sort of heard some of these scales, which, are, which you, you, know, you tend to use in clinical practice. 
you know, what resources are there for, for the average neuroscience clinician out there in terms of getting these scales and other materials? Well, these scales are actually in the course guide uh, as well as on, the neuro, uh, on, on our website. But in addition to that, there are national uh, resources. The National Sleep Foundation is one such resource where you can download the sleep diaries as well as the sleep hygiene instructions. The NIH uh, and the National Center for Sleep Disorders Research, there's also a site there. Where a lot of this information uh, is indeed available. Great. I think it is important that we summarize the key points from this segment for our clinicians. First, excessive sleepiness may be present as a symptom of a psychiatric disorder, a medical or sleep-wake or circadian disorder, and it's often a predictor, or typically it's a predictor, of overall poor health. Second, the consequences of excessive sleepiness are significant and each one needs to be addressed. The best first step is often to ask a simple two or three questions about sleep-wake function. Finally, make sure you're using the screening tool in your practice and measure symptoms change at each visit and document your finding. This type of measurement-based care is critical for the optimal management of patients with sleep-wake disorders. Our second learning objective is to utilize diagnostic tools and instruments to improve the accuracy of the differential diagnosis of excessive sleepiness, including obstructive sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and circadian rhythm disorders such as shift work and jet lag. Phyllis, let's start with you. What is shift work, and, and, and what kind of shifts do shift workers work? Well, shift work is when you have to work at a time that you normally or your physiology or circadian system is telling you to sleep. So oftentimes that's occurring. Uh, you're working at a time when you're sleepiest, and you're trying to sleep at a time when you're actually your, your body is saying, be awake. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some of the common shifts? There, there are various, in this 24-7 society, we have many different types of shifts. These include like night shift work, uh, early morning shifts, and very commonly rotating shift work. The, perhaps the, the, the two that cause the most problems that I think patients or individuals have the most difficulty with adapting to are the night shift workers uh, and, and also the early morning shift. Okay. So, so we have two things. We have shift workers. Mm-hmm. And then we have the shift work sleep disorder, which are these people who complain mm-hmm. of impairment. What are the diagnostic? So, if I suspect a patient has shift work sleep disorder, what are the diagnostic criteria for shift work sleep disorder? Well, for for the, di- the di- you know, an, indivi- an individual would meet the diagnosis of shift work sleep disorder if, of course, they're working an unusual, you know, a shift where they have to work when they're supposed to be sleeping, but they have to have complaints of excessive sleepiness insomnia that actually impairs their function. And we also uh, need to be that it's a chronic problem that lasts at least one month uh, despite trying to adjust and adapt. So these are basically individuals who are shift workers who are unable to adapt to their work schedule. So this relates to what you talked about before these individual differences. Yes, and there are dramatic inter-individual differences. Among these shift workers, what, what what is the prevalence of shift work sleep disorder? Well, in our society, it's about approximately 20% of workers in industrialized nations are shift workers by definition. But what's very interesting, I think, here's where the distinction comes, is that only 10% of those shift workers actually meet the criteria diagnostically for shift work sleep disorder. And of those, really, when we're looking at impairment, we need to focus on the night shift worker and the early morning shift workers because the prevalence is higher. For example, it's about 25% in night shift workers. Now, Larry, let's, let's turn to morbidity because that's what we want to treat and that's what you're going to follow. What are some of the morbidities associated with shift work? What are some of the morbidities associated with shift work sleep disorder? Certainly, and these, uh, these tend to be fairly pervasive. Uh, uh, the effects tend to be pretty pervasive. What we see is worsening of a lot of chronic disease. We have a lot of data uh, about worsening of uh, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, the endocrine diseases, particularly diabetes, mm-hmm. all uh, are much more difficult to control in these patients. Are uh, you know are actually uh, have more uh, severe outcomes. So that's certainly an area. But we also see psychological effects. So we will see patients uh, 
uh, you know, who have uh, more frequent recurrence of psychiatric disorders. Uh, we see depression uh, doubled in these patients. We see uh, GI problems in these right. patients. We see a high rate of ulcers. Uh, so, so the the uh, impact here is is very pervasive. Okay. So, so we have shift workers now. You know, you know, Phyllis and I both have colleagues, chairman of our departments, who sort of walk in and say, I'm going to Japan, what do I do? But, you know, I, I'm sure in clinical practice you have patients who sort of walk in for their annual physical and say, I travel to Japan three times a month, three times sure. a year. How, how do I deal with that? So, so what is jet lag disorder, and, and, and how is that different from just being fatigued from traveling? Sure. And, and what we find is that uh, uh, just as with shift work, we have... Uh, pretty much everyone who travels, uh, particularly where they're uh, passing through multiple time zones, arrive at their destination mm-hmm. fatigued. They they arrive, uh, um, you know, with with uh, you know with the need to catch up. Uh, simple uh, travel fatigue, though, uh, quickly resolves with a good night's sleep. What we find is that jet lag disorder is uh, is uh, present in. Uh, in a subgroup of, of travelers who just can't accommodate. They have difficulty accommodating uh, their circadian rhythm to the new uh, location. And they will have uh, many of the same sequela uh, short term that we see uh, with shift work where uh, their judgment is impaired, their accident rate uh, goes up, their ability to perform often at the peak level that's expected uh, when they arrive, uh, you know, just is, uh, is not there. Good. Okay, now, Phyllis, you know, being a circadian researcher and, and clinician, how, you, know, you know, how do you pursue somebody with jet lag disorder? You know, what, what, what are some of the assessments you would perform? I think as Larry said earlier, usually it's benign and self-limited, but there are individuals that, uh, for example, who are frequent travelers or whose job uh, involves concerns about safety, for example, pilots. And there I think you really want to assess the level of sleepiness, the level of impairment, and at that point certainly you, you want to make sure that they're adhering to a good sleep habits and good sleep hygiene and, and also trying to maximize circadian alignment using light therapy, for example. And, and, and then also weight-promoting agents may be necessary under certain circumstances. Okay. All right, let's turn, let's, let's, let's change gears a, a bit. Probably the most recognized sleep disorder uh, seems to be obstructive sleep apnea. You know, how prevalent is sleep apnea in our society? Well, unfortunately, uh, particularly as we um, grow our society in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the BNI, you know, dramatic increase that we are unfortunately seeing, uh, it's becoming much more prevalent. And what we find is that, uh, you know, conservative, at least 2% of women, 4% of men, you know, have obstructive sleep apnea. Uh, some more recent estimates uh, mm-hmm. uh, peg the prevalence at uh, more like 5%, one out of 20 people. And, uh, you know, the instance, the, the new onset appears to be about 2% uh, per year when we use criteria related to the uh, apnea hypopnea index. So, Phyllis, so we've heard that there are different definitions. It's 2%, 4%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what, is, what is a good working definition for the diagnosis of sleep apnea? What's a good working diagnosis for, for our audience? Sure, I think clinically most of us uh, would certainly agree that if you have an apnea hypopnea index of 15 or greater, that that is, represents significant amounts of clinical defined sleep apnea. And apnea is basically cessation of breathing and hypopnea and indexes how many of these respiratory events one has over, uh, over an hour period. So that's basically the index. However, there are many individuals whose apnea hypopnea index may only be five or greater. And in those, the CMS actually has helped us define this already. And so if, if you have an apnea hypopnea index of five or greater and it's accompanied by symptoms of excessive sleepiness, insomnia, depression, and also with comorbid associations with hypertension, diabetes, or heart disease, that that also implies that this is a significant level of sleep apnea that should be treated. So there are, t- there are two routes to getting the diagnosis. One is Correct. pure sign-based, one is Correct. sign and symptom-based. Okay. Now, now are there g- gender differences in the prevalence of sleep apnea? 
Yes, there are indeed gender differences in, in just not the prevalence only, but also the presentation. So uh, although men, middle-aged men, tend to be at high risk for obstructive sleep apnea, we tend to think this is an obese uh, male with a big, large neck. Women present, may present differently. For example, they may have more insomnia complaints. They may not present with snoring or witnessed apneas. And also, their, their physical characteristics may be different. They may not be as obese, and certainly the neck size may not be as applicable. Okay. So we've heard BMI is a big risk factor. So, so, so what is the relationship of BMI and apnea, BMI and, and, and uh, apnea and age, whether by gender? So, so what are some of those relationships? Sure. And, and I think this is one uh, where uh, certainly what I learned and what I uh, you know, originally thought was, you know, if I don't have an obese person with a big uh, neck, mm-hmm. I really don't need to worry about obstructive sleep apnea, and that's just not the case. What we find is that the association uh, between weight and BMI and neck, uh, you know, size uh, is you know uh, is high in the young adult, the middle, uh, you know, aged, particularly mm-hmm. male. But that as we age up and as we get mm-hmm. over the age of fifty, and and postpartum women, then in fact those become much more minor risk factors and we see obstructive sleep apnea, you know, not uncommonly in the normal weight individual with, uh, without the physical stigmata right. uh, that we commonly associate with it. So particularly in the older individual, we've got to recognize that we may have obstructive sleep apnea in the individual that doesn't fit our, our usual right. image of it. So you don't have to be a football player to have sleep apnea? <laughs> Okay, so so, Phyllis, so we've now heard about this is a, a prevalent disorder. Now, you know, but it seems to have a lot of concern. But what are the consequences when you have an apnea? You, have, you know, you spend a night and you stop breathing. What happens when you stop breathing? Well, during sleep, when there is a loss uh, or decrease in the ability to maintain the patency of the upper airway, that results in either apnea or hypopnea, which then sets up a whole cascade of physiological events. One would be hypoxemia, so oxygen goes down, and that can cause uh, sequelae with cardiovascular disorders such as hypertension and heart disease. And then the other one is, is really these multiple arousals or sleep fragmentation, which may be associated with cognitive uh, impairment that's commonly seen in, in people with sleep apnea, and, and, and then also perhaps some of the neuropsychiatric uh, conditions like depression. So what are... The- so what are some of these long-term consequences? I've had me for the last two years. What, what, what are some of the consequences, both in terms of central nervous system, metabolic effects, cardiac, and what are some yeah, of those yeah, effects? Yeah, there's been actually a good deal of data in this area. So if you think about CNS effects, mm-hmm. memory uh, impairment, cognition, perhaps depression, anxiety has also been associated with it. If you look at metabolic, diabetes, insulin resistance, and a really multitude of cardiovascular uh, consequences and sequelae, particular hypertension, cardiac arrhythmias, and also more recently association with stroke. Yeah. Very important, our clinicians will want to know more than anything is, is it's one thing to have a morbidity of a disorder, but is there data that suggests that some of these morbidities get reversed when we treat them with CPAP? We're beginning to get those data, and I think exactly that's very, very important. And the, and the most compelling data is with hypertension, showing that adequate treatment of sleep apnea with nasal CPAP can actually improve or decrease uh, blood pressure, and as well as some evolving data now showing that it can also improve the glycemic index. Okay. So, so Larry, we've now heard that, that this is a prevalent disorder. It has significant morbidity, even mortality yeah. in some of the higher indexes we didn't talk about. So, so if, if I'm a clinician, what, what raises my level of suspicion? What kinds of questions sure. do I ask? Yeah. Well, we go back to what Phyllis just mm-hmm. uh, just described. And if you think in in uh, yeah in family practice, we basically see patients uh, for acute problems. Probably a third uh, half of our visits are acute problems, and there we see a lot mm-hmm. of the uh, issues that, that Phyllis has just covered. So, anytime I'm seeing a patient uh, that either in uh, yeah, in the history or in the physical evaluation, I, yeah, I see risk factors. Uh, I, yeah, I need to pursue that. But that's not the only case. You know, we have patients coming in. Probably another third of our visits are chronic right. illness patients, and there, probably the most useful thing to remember is any time you're dealing with a patient with resistant disease, 
you ought to be thinking about the possibility of obstructive sleep mm -hmm. apnea. Mm -hmm. So the hypertensive patient that I'm mm -hmm. starting on the third medication, you know, the diabetic patient that I just can't get under control, the depressed patient that's had another recurrence, you know, that is just not responding to right. treatment, those are all good examples of where I need to be thinking okay. that obstructive sleep apnea may be lurking. Yeah. And then prevention, you know, in my periodic health assessment exams, and just asking, again, the two or three questions, you know, may uncover uh, obstructive sleep apnea. So, so the CMS criteria for sleep evaluation are, one, a history, and we just heard from Larry mm -hmm. what kind of histories to look for, uh, two, sleep questionnaires, you talked mm -hmm. about the Epworth mm -hmm. and other kinds mm -hmm. of questionnaires, mm -hmm. Voscu, mm -hmm. and, but then it says, phys and also physical examination. And, and what are some of the physical findings one would expect if they evaluate an apnea patient? Well, clearly obesity, so document the BMI, uh, check blood pressure, hypertension is commonly associated with obstructive sleep apnea, and also something that we oftentimes don't do is an examination of the upper airway. And in, 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 in patients with, with OSA, they're more likely to have uh, mandibular problems like retronathia. And one of the things that's very useful is the Malampati scale or the examination. And this is merely looking at the upper airway, the relationship of whether it's patent uh, obstruction of the upper airway. And really, Malampati 3 or 4 is highly associated with obstructive sleep apnea. Great. Phyllis Larry, that was very, very useful. Let me summarize the key clinical connections from, from the presentations. First, regarding shift work sleep disorder, the symptoms of shift work sleep disorder are related to misalignment of the circadian clock, and, and there are genetic differences into which that misalignment results in people becoming sleepy during, during the evening, during their mm -hmm. work, or difficulty sleeping during the day. Mm -hmm. Shift work disorder is associated with various comorbidities, and it is critical that the clinician ask their patients about their work schedule. It's mm -hmm. a routine part of every physical examination. Regarding jet lag, it is important to differentiate jet lag from just travel-related fatigue. And like other causes of excessive sleepiness, to evaluate the severity and the impact, the degree of impact of that sleepiness. Regarding obstructive sleep apnea, it is important to screen for obstructive sleep apnea in our patients, both in a more commonly large-necked, overweight men it is also important to visualize the airways with the Malampati score and ask about snoring. It's important to recognize that non-obese men and women and patients with small neck circumferences, especially in our older elderly population, can suffer from obstructive sleep apnea. It is important to ask patients about snoring and to visualize their, uh, uh, their airway. Obstructive sleep apnea can exacerbate a variety of medical conditions and can lead to poor overall health and, in fact, to mortality. Now let's review the learning objectives for this third segment, which is to integrate both primary care and sleep specialists in the optimal management of the continuum of care of patients with sleep-wake disorders. Larry, when and for what purpose would you refer a patient to a sleep center? So when, when do you decide they need a sleep evaluation? Yeah, and, and uh, I do this um, fairly frequently when I uncover a sleep disorder uh, that I need help on confirming the diagnosis, uh, evaluating severity, are in determining treatment. So uh, I don't typically refer for a sleep study. What I do is I refer the patient to a sleep center or a sleep specialty, uh, specialist for consultation because I want to develop a collaboration uh, with that professional around the long-term care of these patients because most of these problems are chronic and require a team approach uh, you know, for, uh, for the best outcome. So certainly any time I have a patient uh, who screens positive, I'm going to refer. And even sometimes when I have a patient that's not screen positive, but I just, you know, mm -hmm. my gut tells yeah. me there's a problem here in the sleep domain. That's the patient that I'll get off, uh, you know, for an expert consultation. Now, Phyllis, being on the other side of this interaction, mm -hmm. being a sleep what you, in your impression, is what, what do most physicians want from you when you, they refer a patient? Most, we just did a survey of this, and most physicians want us to um, diagnose the sleep disorder and then at least initially manage it to a point where they're pretty stable and then refer them back to their primary care doctors for kind of more the chronic management that Larry uh, spoke about. So, so one of the things they want is a sleep, evaluate, a sleep study. What kind of sleep studies are there? 
Well, there are different types of sleep studies, but the most typical ones what we call polysomnogram. This is an overnight sleep study in the laboratory setting where we monitor multiple physiological parameters like the electroencephalogram, the oxygen saturation, breathing, the EKG, and so forth. That uh, is, is usually, you know, it's the gold standard to diagnose predominantly sleep apnea, but other types of sleep disorders like parasomnias and maybe nocturnal seizures. There's also what we call split-night protocol. And here's where uh, we, it, it's, it's really a combination of a CPAP titration after one has already made the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea. So usually people who have moderate to severe apnea, the second part of the study is actually a titration study. And then there's a lot of talk now between the benefits of home, you know, home-based studies like portable studies versus in-lab studies. And it's still a little too early to really tell you exactly how, you know, how it's all going to shake out right. in the future. But there are some benefits to uh, home-based studies, decreasing costs, access to, 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 to sleep studies, for example. And, and, and I think we'll, be, we'll see a little bit more of this in the future. So, so, so for, for our audience, it's, it's stay tuned. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yes. This, this is an evolutionary process. Larry, so, so we, we now have a sleep study. Who owns this patient at this point? Well, uh, you know, what Phyllis just described, uh, yeah, presents eloquently why I don't even try <laughs> to specify uh, what the evaluation mm -hmm. should be. I don't order a sleep study because this is a dynamic field, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and my sleep center is up on the latest and, right. and, and uh, really has... Uh, uh, you know, a span mm -hmm. that they can adapt to, to mm -hmm. my patient uh, best. So I really see the sleep specialist uh, as being very very helpful and probably responsible mm -hmm. for confirming the diagnosis, evaluating severity initially, and really tailoring and individualizing the treatment uh, approach to the patient mm -hmm. and helping the patient during the first uh, interval adapt to that treatment, uh, you know, really pick up and using it. Beyond that, though, this is a chronic problem, right. and that's where a team and a collaboration makes sense because the patient comes back to me for all their other problems, and I see mm -hmm. the impact, the hypertension, the diabetes, the, you know, the other concerns. I can help them in terms of lifestyle modification, you know, exercise, diet, and so forth. Uh, and I can also recognize the patient that is veering off track mm -hmm. in terms of the treatment right. and make sure that they get back into the sleep specialist periodically, you know, for, in essence, tune-ups, for possibly uh, um, accessing right. new therapies mm -hmm. that come available. Right. So mm -hmm. this is really a collaboration long-term. Mm -hmm. well, with that, let's turn to therapeutics. And, and, and Phyllis, just very globally, what are the treatment approaches to shift work sleep disorders? Just very globally. Well, the, the optimal treatment for shift work sleep disorder requires really a multimodal approach. And probably the first thing that, is, that I would do is to look at the behavioral changes and lifestyle changes that can occur. One, important to optimize daytime sleep as much as possible in a night shift worker. So the, the sleep environment, good sleep hygiene instructions being able to realign or accelerate alignment of circadian rhythm so that it matches now when they're sleeping and working matches their internal physiological uh, sleepiness and, and alertness uh, rhythms. And that can be used with light therapy, for example, during the night shift and then also uh, avoiding some light in the early morning shift. So there are some behavior strategies that we can initially uh, attempt in all our patients. Okay. Now, at a, at a clinical level, you know, mm -hmm. What do patients come in having self-treated, and what are some of the therapeutic options which are FDA-approved? Sure, and, and you know, we all self-treat uh, <laughs> you know, with that pervasive ingredient, caffeine. And uh, you know, my patients come in having, uh, particularly ship workers, they go in with their uh, El Grande uh, of some sort, uh, not uncommonly. And, um, yeah, and, and the issue, though, is when they come to me, you know, or when it comes into my office, mm -hmm. they're really looking for professional help. Right. Yeah, and they've tried, you know, the caffeine route. They've tried, you know, the pills, the caffeine pills. They've tried all of that. Yeah, and it's very frequent that they, it's still not working for them. So I, at that point, can give them help. I can get them help, certainly, if they're having problem 
attaining sleep during the daytime. You know, there are certainly agents there, but I can also help them with excessive sleepiness. And particularly where, you know, the patient's a danger, uh, I find it uh, very important, uh, you know, that, that we treat. They may be a danger in terms of accidents. They may be a danger of losing their job, their livelihood. Yeah, and in those patients, I think, uh, you know, uh, pharmacologic intervention is appropriate. We now have two agents, uh, modafinil and amodafinil, that are FDA-approved, far use with uh, shift work uh, sleep disorder, and we find very strong data uh, that they improve uh, uh, you know, sleep latency, uh, uh, and, and really both improve. Mm-hmm. You know, the amodafinil uh, is a bit longer acting. It's an uh, isomer of, uh, you know, of modafinil. Both, both uh, very useful agents approved for this indication so the, by the FDA. So the two approved medications are modafinil and the isomer are modafinil. Right. Okay. So, Phyllis, you heard there's helping them sleep by day and helping them stay awake by night. How do you put that together? You know, well, you know how much is fixing their sleep? by day really help them? Well, Tom, clearly we want to fix their sleep during the day as much as possible. We want to also align their circadian rhythms. But just fixing their sleep during, you know, during their sleep hours oftentimes is not sufficient to keep them awake and functionally and safe during their work time. And that's because of the circadian misalignment. So again, it's very important to uh, get bright light during the shift and perhaps also avoid bright light in the early morning hours for those night shift workers and really have to pay attention to this alertness issue, which is really the predominant problem in most of these shift workers. Okay, so we heard a little about shift work, sleep disorder, and how to manage it. How about jet lag, your, your patient which came sure. in and told you that they go to Japan three times? How do you manage those people? You know, those patients, uh, there are a number of, of uh, management options. Certainly managing uh, the travel, you know, uh, and, and things we all know. Don't get dehydrated. Don't mm-hmm. use excessive alcohol on the plane. From the minute you get on the plane, adapt to your uh, arrival time zone. So uh, if you're getting on a plane at night, don't immediately go to sleep. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, plan your uh, onboard sleep to coincide with the, you know, with time at, at arrival. But then at arrival, there are some light uh, exposure issues, uh, you know, and interventions that can be used. Uh, certainly, melatonin, you know, three milligrams at uh, at bedtime, in the arrival, uh, you know, time. Uh, can be useful, and then particularly for the person who suffers from true jet lag disorder, mm-hmm. who's having to function, and just you know their circadian rhythm is just not letting them function mm-hmm. appropriately. They're having difficulty making that uh, jump to a new circadian rhythm in tune with their, their arrival uh, location. That's a patient that uh, I might use uh, one of the sleep-promoting agents. It's mm-hmm. off-label, right. uh, but it can be very effective. And again, we're we're looking at. Uh, you know, probably a few days of, uh, of assistance here. So, so at this point, all medications, whether for sleep, you know, for whether it's mel- melatonin to move the clock or, or, or awake-enhancing drugs, they're off-label for child yeah. like at the present time. Exactly. Okay. Well, l- l- let's now turn to obstructive sleep apnea because I think that's where mm-hmm. a, a lot of our listeners want to hear about. Larry, what are some of the treatment options for the patients with sleep apnea? Uh, again, and particularly for us in primary care, lifestyle modification issues are things that we can promote. And, uh, you, know, um, you know, good sleep hygiene, uh, exercise, weight reduction, uh, again, because this is a chronic uh, problem, they can all be helpful. But when it really comes down to it, CPAP is the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that is what most of our patients need, and that is what most of our patients will uh, significantly benefit from. And then there are patients that, uh, for a number of reasons, may not adapt to CPAP, you know, may not be able to, to uh, use CPAP effectively. And for those patients, we have a number of uh, uh, dental appliances, mandibular devices, uh, even surgery uh, that may be useful. And again, here's where my sleep specialist can help uh, figure out the right approach for the individual patient. So, so we just heard that, that, that CPAP is, is the gold standard of the treatment right. of sleep apnea. Yeah. What, are some, you know, what are some of the limitations of CPAP? Well, the CPAP is really the most effective treatment. Compliance is actually quite poor. Uh, only about 50% of patients after one year are still using their CPAP uh, machines. And really for optimal benefit or for just benefit from CPAP, clinical benefit, the minimum requirement is an average of four hours of, of use per night. And most, most people really aren't doing that. OK, 
Okay, now, now how do you increase adherence to CPAP? Well, one of the big problems, I think, with CPAP is, is intolerance because of the mask. So we need to address mask comfort issues. And there are really over 20-some masks on the market to really help individuals uh, find the best fit mask. Added humidification. Dealing with uh, nasal congestion, which is a very, very common problem, can help with a CPAP adherence. And also addressing some of the psychological issues that one may have with wearing a mask that makes you look like a benign Darth Vader is, <laughs> is, is certainly important. Well, well Larry, a, a paper recently came out by, by Dr. Weaver from the University of Pennsylvania which showed that even people who adhere to, to, to it five, six hours a night and, and who have no other problems, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50% of these people continue to be sleepy. What, what, you know, what, what are the next steps? Well, at this point, it, it's, it's really two steps. You know, one is I've got to figure out what's going on. Right. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, as you say, it's, it, you know, are they using the equipment effectively? Are they, use, are they really adhering to it? Are they just telling, you know, uh, people that, mm -hmm. that they're using it but they're not, you know, really uh, adjusting to it? Is, is it set up right? So that's certainly one, but even then we have a large portion, probably 40% of people, that continue to have excessive sleepiness. Uh, we need to look for other sleep disorders. You know, mm -hmm. Do they have another mm -hmm. problem uh, uh, associated? Do they have a medical problem? Uh, so there is a diagnostic process here that we have to, 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 to work through. But once we have, we do have a residual group of probably you know, 30, 40% of patients that just continue to have problems with excessive sleepiness and all of the impact that we've already discussed. And for that group of patients, a, a sleep-promoting agent uh, can be very effective uh, and is indicated. You know, uh, you know, studies have demonstrated that uh, armodafinil uh, can be very helpful in reducing excessive sleepiness. Uh, you know, a study with uh, um, using the ESS has demonstrated very nicely that patients do much better in terms of their daytime function uh, with harmodafinil. Okay, so this is on label use on label, for refractory yes. sleepiness, not for apnea primarily. Exactly. Great. Okay, Phyllis and Larry, thank you so much for the useful information. I want to quickly summarize the key points in this segment. First, it is important that primary care providers and sleep specialists work collaboratively in the care of patients. In the treatment of shift work sleep disorder, a first step is to optimize the sleep environment and the appropriate exposure to light, and more importantly, the inappropriate exposure to light. It is critical to start with environmental and behavioral treatments, such as avoiding bright light, optimize the sleep environment, take prophylactic naps, and if issues of safety arise in the workplace or during the drive home, management with wake-promoting agents become appropriate. When treating patients with jet lag, make sure they avoid alcohol and caffeine, educate them about proper light exposure, and utilize melatonin and wake-promoting agents, but importantly to recognize both of these are off-label mm -hmm. use of these medications. Finally, when treating patients with obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP remains the standard of care. Make sure you're measuring adherence objectively. It is critical to follow your patients, both in terms of their signs, such as hypertension, and in terms of their symptoms, such as excessive sleepiness. If residual excessive sleepiness or hypertension exists, you have to treat that directly. In the case of sleepiness, sleepiness management of the wake-promoting agent may be appropriate and is indicated for the use of some medications. Phyllis and Larry, you have both done an excellent job providing us with an evidence-based overview of recognition and management of common sleep disorders associated with excessive sleepiness. While we are waiting for questions, I did want to mention to you that Neuroscience CME website, we have a number of screening tools we discussed today in the program, and we hope you visit the site and use these tools in your practice. Phyllis, we're going to start with you because okay. this is, I, I know this <laughs> happens to be one of your big interests, research interests. You've, done, you've published a series of papers on genetic differences in circadian. Okay. Is there a genetic link that makes some people more susceptible to being sleepy or consequences of, of sleep loss or shift work? Well, it is very likely because there are very large inter, inter, individual differences. So there's some recent studies. One actually has to do with circadian clock genes, uh, amazingly. And, uh, for example, there, there's this gene, a circadian gene called the period gene. And certain polymorphisms, like the 5-5 repeat, the tandem repeat of the per-3 uh, per gene, it seems to render susceptibility 
to uh, impairments associated with sleep loss. So when they're sleep deprived, they seem to have uh, less ability to deal with that impairment. So yes, they're, 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 there's evolving data that there are genetic differences. Okay. Larry, you know, we, you talked about using sleep laboratories. Is a PSG required for the diagnosis of jet lag? Is a polysomnia sleep study required for the diagnosis of jet lag? No. In fact, uh, you know, <laughs> I would say it's rather unusual that we would get one in that setting. Most of this is, uh, you know, as, as, as in all of medicine, history is critical. And uh, with jet lag, it's, it's really a history uh, diagnosis. Dr. Z, do patients that work early morning shifts, so you talked mm -hmm. about this increasingly yes. common shift is getting, you know, you have to be at work at 6, you've got to get mm -hmm. up at 5 to commute, mm -hmm. you've got to get up at 4 to get ready. Mm -hmm. Do patients work early morning shifts still suffer from shift work sleep disorder, or is the circadian clock better able to, to, to deal with this misalignment? No, oftentimes the early morning shift workers suffer from shift work sleep disorder because they're continuously sleep deprived to some extent. They have to wake up early in the morning and they still may not be able to get, get to sleep at an early enough time because of the circadian misalignment. You know, one of the things that I find uh, you know, key is, uh, you know, in an urban area, mm -hmm. we have, you know, very often one, two, three hour commutes. Right. And, and so the person right. who has to be at work at seven right. may be getting up at three. Right. Absolutely. So absolutely. you think absolutely. they have a daytime shift. You know, yeah, right. okay, it's 7 o'clock start. Absolutely. But they're actually be getting up in the middle of the night. And, oh, and I think that's... Uh, I, I think know, actually uh, within, yeah, within shift work, I think that is the largest growing segment of, of, of the population. I think that's going to be more and more common, both because of commutes and start times of companies. Yeah. You know, we've sort of been talking about excessive sleepiness, and we've been talking about, you know, people who have excessive sleepiness. What about people who sleep too much? Can you sleep too much? Does too much sleep pose an issue? You know, what, what do you do if a patient comes in and, and complains of, you know, you know, too much sleep, what we call hypersomnia? Well, clearly, hypersomnia is is a diagnosis. It's a sleep disorder. In in and certainly, people with narcolepsy, for example, will sleep too much, and 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 that is a disorder of excessive sleepiness. And, and then also, I think, very interesting, Tom, there are these epi epidemiological studies showing kind of a bit of a U-shaped curve where too little sleep, less than six hours or so of sleep, is associated with cardiometabolic disorders. But also, on the other spectrum, when you're getting more than nine hours or ten hours of sleep, that may also be in, in some ways associated with negative health consequences. Of course, we don't know why the association, but that seems to indicate that you, maybe you could sleep too much. Yeah, and, and certainly in primary care, that also is a presentation at time for melancholic depression, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, where we've got somebody that uh, you know, is part of their depressive syndrome is, uh, you know, has I, a long uh, I, I think that's right. I think one of the things I wanted to touch on that is, is, is hypersomnia or, or sleeping a long mm -hmm. time. Is, is very much related to, to you know to seasonal mm -hmm. affective disorder. So people sure. with seasonal affective disorder still complain about sleeping too much. Mm -hmm. But I just think one of the things that's very important is, is, is evaluation. Very often, in several papers which suggest that a lot of people with depression, they're not sleeping too long. They're just staying in bed the next three hours of the day. So affective right. disorders is if somebody who sleeps hypersomnia. Right. You know, affective disorder is something that we pursue. Yeah. And I just want to emphasize something that Phyllis said, which I think is critically important. That if you are sleeping these 10, 12, 13 hours, that's a, that, there's pathology. You got to yeah. pursue that. And it's very good data from from both from our laboratory and Dr. Ware at NIH. If you put normal, healthy volunteers in right. bed for 16 hours a day, right. they'll sleep eight, not 12. That's right. Yeah. That's so you right. can't oversleep. It's biologically self-limiting. Right. Well, we have a. A call from Dr. Stephen Cohn from Florida. Oh, hi. Um, actually, I, I come at this issue from many points of view. First of all, I'm a pharmacist. Uh, I'm a cancer scientist. I'm also a uh, sleep apnea patient. By the way, very compliant over eight, <laughs> nine years. Smart man. You're one of those 50%. Smart man. <laughs> and I'm also a, a cancer survivor. Uh, so the first question I'd like to ask is, what, what studies have been done on uh, sleep apnea and, and drug metabolism? This is obviously a pretty interesting question, uh, especially those that are taking Lipitor, and Lipitor obviously is being metabolized overnight. And does sleep apnea have an effect on, let's say, Lipitor or other drug metabolism? I know of no studies which have looked at that, which is sort of interesting because you probably do have changes in metabolism. Whether you have changes in the SIP system, I don't know. I, I think there are data to suggest that within one drug, modafinil, which has been studied in apnea as well as narcolepsy, there are no changes in metabolism in that population. 
but but that's a great question. In other words, these people, apnea patients are on statins, antihypertensives, and what happens to blood levels? I think that's a dynamite question, and, and yeah. dynamite question is one which none of us have a clue to answer to, but a yeah, great question. Right. And even more, what about sleep loss, sleep right. deprivation effect mm -hmm. on drug metabolism? Yeah. Absolutely. Nothing. And I have another question, uh, and this is where I put on my, my other hat, my science hat, and, and it turns out that uh, there is some pretty good evidence that, that natural killer cells may, may keep uh, tumor cells in check. In other words, they prevent them from, uh, from growing and, prevent that, and keep the uh, tumor in, in remission. Now, if uh, sleep deprivation uh, uh, lowers natural killer cell activity, and while you were talking, uh, I actually looked this up, and it turns out that uh, sleep deprivation lowers natural killer cells, yes. it may be that sleep deprivation may have an effect on, uh, on cancer and uh, cancer remission rates. Uh, and this would be kind of a, another area that probably hasn't even been touched. So sleep deprivation in this may, may really have other effects that probably haven't been touched uh, as far as, as science goes. Well, as you saw on that slide we had up there, there are data from Dr. Van Catter at the University of Chicago. There are clear effects of sleep deprivation in the immune system. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, you know, so I, very clearly I, I suspect there would be effects on cancer, but I'm not sure that's been studied directly. But where there is some data is in shift workers. Right. So yes. that's what's interesting. Yeah. So it's not, so this is a combination now of sleep deprivation and circadian right. misalignment. Yeah. And there's some very strong epidemiological data and also basic science data to suggest that the circadian yep. misalignment may actually increase the risk for cancer, such as breast cancer. Yep. Yep. In fact, in some countries in the world, it's a disability. It's the, rated as a disability. Yeah, the World right. Health Organization right. has deemed it as a pos shift work as a possible carcinogen. You know, this is a very important question, you know, great audience. You know, you know we, we've been talking about obstructive sleep apnea. We sort of talk about fat people, thin mm -hmm. people, men, women, young, old. What is an abnormal AHI in children? So if I have a three-year-old with a big tonsils and adenoids, what's an abnormal AHI? Is it 5, 10, 15? There is no set criteria for an HI in children. But the American Pediatric uh, Society has, has Academy has, you know, they have guidelines that children should be screened for obstructive sleep apnea. And usually they present with behavioral problems, right. yeah. such as, you know, what we call ADHD, uh, they, because sleepiness could be a mm -hmm. sign of hyperactivity. Yep. And uh, so they should be screened. But there's no really good consensus right. with that. Uh, some, some, some individuals, experts, would say one apnea is too many. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in, in Absolutely. children. Absolutely. There so. certainly are pediatric sleep people who sort of say one app, an AHI of one right. is, mm -hmm. is pathological. Some people actually say snoring in children ought to be aggressively yes. treated. Yes. Well, and in fact, I think certainly if I've got a, a three-year-old who's snoring, that's a kid I really don't Absolutely. be looking at. Absolutely. Absolutely. If, if it's chronic. And then if I see the kid who's also not progressing on the growth curve appropriately. Right. Right. That's, again, a kid that I would be looking at uh, Absolutely. particularly. Uh, and, and the treatment's uh, very different. The, the, right. the, the, the first line treatment in children is probably surgery, like tonsillectomy mm -hmm. yep, instead of CPAP. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, a, a very interesting question. You know, we, we sort of talked about, you know, hypertension, depression, or cardiovascular diseases, you know, other cardiovascular diseases. How long does it take? Do we know? How many years do you have to have apnea before you start winding up with hypertension, these things? I don't think we know exactly how many years you need, but we do have data from epidemiological studies that follow people for 15 years, 5 right. or 15 years, and even at 5 years, the 5-year data shows they didn't have hypertension 5 years, and 5 years later, they, you know, they have hypertension. So it could be anywhere from 5 to maybe 15 years, the exact number, I, I, I don't know. Well, and, and remember, when we look at, at uh, the relationship between hypertension, mm -hmm. I mean, we're not really worried about hypertension, we're worried about its sequela. Mm -hmm. You know, we're worried about the cardiovascular, you know, the stroke, uh, mm -hmm. sequela of hypertension and what we know there is there is no threshold you know that uh, you know that at every level of blood pressure a reduction in blood pressure right. leads to improvement so, I think there's, that, so that's that's key yep. you know if, if, uh, if I, I, I think one of the things we may have sort of glossed over which I think is sort of very important and, and that is your refractory sleepy patient we sort of mm -hmm. talked about CPAP compliance mm -hmm. we sort of talked about looking for other disorders what are some of those disorders like periodic limb movement disorder 
Mm -hmm. You know, you want to look for whether that's present, restless leg syndrome, whether that's present, right. other occultists, parasomnias, pain conditions. So any disorder mm -hmm. which can cause sleepiness, you know, mm -hmm. whether that's fragmented sleep, whether sleep disorder, in the GERD, yeah, neuropathic absolutely. pain, right. those could be a cause of refractory sleepiness right. as well. Mm -hmm. I thank yes. the nighttime urination in, in the elderly, right. big issue. If I have absolutely. to get up four times a night, uh, I'm disrupting my sleep. I'm curious about the effects of provigil on the unborn fetus or baby being breadfest. Provigil is being taken for narcolepsy at 300 milligrams a day. Any thoughts? I don't think there's data in, well, in, in, in specifically. Well, well for, for, for first that. of all, you know, there, there is no registry. You know, first of all, it does pass through breast milk. So yes, I, I think there's very little question about that. Yes, so, so one thing we can do is give you an answer to that part. And two, you know, it, it, it is very clear there are no data on that. You know, so, so we don't really know. I, I think there's a whole literature now on treating bipolar disease, you know, the risks and benefits of a treatment versus the not treatment. I think that's where we are with the use of stimulants. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so, so I, I think we've run out of our time. So, so again, we have more questions than you can think about. I want to thank Phyllis and Larry for joining us today. We are unfortunately out of time. I would like to remind the audience to please stay tuned for after the show segment, which will begin shortly. I want also to remind our audience to check the website www.neurosciencecme for a complete listing of broadcasts, patient simulations, CME snack segments, journal club, and more. For Neuroscience CME TV, I am Dr. Tom Roth, thanking you for joining us today, and I hope you are able to incorporate the evidence that we discussed today to improve patient care in your patient population. Thank you.